A killing spree in California, driven by a failed musician turned crazy cult leader, referred to as the Manson family. I'm very worried about what can happen if they get released. There are armies of young, like-minded hate groups that see these people as their fearless leaders. That's Deborah Tate, sister of Hollywood starlet Sharon Tate, who was brutally murdered by Manson followers in a crime spree that would be known as Helter Skelter. People say, it's been 50 years, Deborah. Why, do, why can't you forgive? It's not a matter of forgiving. I forgave a long time ago. I don't have any ill will in my heart for any of these people. But I do recognize danger when I see it. The danger now, very real. After Charles Manson follower Leslie Van Houten was released from a California state prison. Before we dive into the case, I want to remind you that this is for mature audiences. Might not be for everyone. And at the end of the episode, I'll share with you how you can help Deborah in her fight to keep the rest of the Manson family members, who are still alive, behind bars. And also help other victims' families. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline. A podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself. Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for episode 42, the Manson family cult and controversial release of convicted killer Leslie Van Houten, which takes us to my hometown, Los Angeles, with palm trees and sunshine during a time of flower power and during a time when people really didn't lock their doors. They were more trusting. Millennials and Gen Xers. So that is a time before cell phones, internet, Starbucks, microwaves, but I digress. All kidding aside, it was also a time of pure fear. That awful night in August of 1969, Tate and four others butchered with knives, shot and hung from the rafters, blood on the wall, a community in panic. Then the next night, more slaughter. Lino and Rosemary LaBianca hogtied and killed in their Los Feliz home. Charles Manson follower Leslie Van Houten who helped carry out the gruesome murders of Lino and Rosemary LaBianca, with Charles Tex Watson was sentenced to life for those murders. The LaBiancas were killed and tortured in their upscale Los Feliz home in Los Angeles. Blood was smeared on the walls after. It was just disgusting. Van Houten was only 19 at the time. She admitted to holding Rosemary down with a pillowcase over her head as Rosemary had to listen to her husband getting butchered in the room next door. During her parole hearing, Van Houten said that Tex had ordered her to, quote, do something. So he handed her a knife and then she stabbed Rosemary more than a dozen times. The murders happened just one day after the Manson followers killed actress Sharon Tate, her unborn baby, and four others in Sharon Tate's Beverly Hills home. Van Houten said that she didn't participate in those killings. But she is still part of the planning, according to Tate's younger sister, Deborah, who was only 16 at the time. Some of them killed more, some of them killed less, but they were all involved in the planning and were all willing to kill as many as humanly possible. 
Now, when I worked in Los Angeles, I did several reports about the Manson family and had the pleasure of meeting Deborah Tate. We told you earlier that a panel has recommended parole for Manson follower Leslie Van Houten. It's been 50 years since the brutal Manson slayings. Matt Johnson looks at the lasting impact of the Manson family murders. And the sister of Sharon Tate is still suffering. Fox 11's Matt Johnson talked with Deborah Tate. Now, during the interview and in years since, we have spoken many times about her work as a victim's rights advocate, how she attends every parole hearing for the Manson family members, especially after her mother died, she used to go. And especially since the killer's death sentences were reduced from death row to life in prison. Now that happened after the California Supreme Court overturned the death penalty in 1972, which was later reinstated, but did not apply retroactively to this case. They said life in prison. They didn't say without the possibility of parole, so of course a few years later, that's what it morphed into. Um, he did another kindly favor. It's called the Elderly Inmate Act, and what that states is after any inmate is 60 years of age, whether or not they meet the criteria for parole, the board must give them an exit date, which is why I do hearings every year. I want to play for you one of my conversations with Deborah. The quality might not be what you're used to. We have come a long way with the podcast, but the message still very crystal clear. I am Deborah Tate of a long legacy of victims' rights advocates. Sharon Tate was my older sister and uh, the sun and the moon to me. How do you remember her? She just seems like a light. Sharon absolutely was a light and still is a beacon, in my opinion, for any young woman to aspire. Sharon was inspirational in every single aspect of her life. She was a philanthropist. She would make anybody feel as if they were the only person in the world and that she could give completely of herself every, every bit of time that they needed. She became the focus. They're, they became the focus of her day. Was she already a big star or was she a rising star? She had that it factor. What did she star in? Valley of the Dolls, Don't Make Waves, Matt Helm with uh, Dean Martin. That was actually, in its day, it was a spoof series, a spoof on um, James Bond. It was hilarious. And she was one of the Matt Helm girls. She would have gone on to do numerous Matt Helm films had she lived. But for you, she was just your sister. That's right. My confidant, my my rock, um, my, my love and support. Um, we were military brats, they called us, military brats, children of, of professional officers. And with the high-ranking officer, mom would have the bridge club, country club kind of a life that would have to uh, interact with foreign dignitaries, wives, etc., etc. Sharon was really like my mother. 
she was my mother she was my sister she was my best friend she was literally my everything as she rose uh, to success in the film industry her friends were my friends I hung out with them I was accepted into the group uh, I wasn't a typical little sister because you acquire a lot of wisdom when you're traveling like that you can make friends it's a it's a skill set that I wouldn't trade for anything you can make friends with anybody anytime any place and um, so, so I was privileged to be included in her life every single step of the way. Take me to the day when her life was tragically taken away. Uh, that was a horrible day that I will never forget. I was actually supposed to go over that night. She had a, I was an equestrian, a very up-and-coming serious contender and she had a special uh, English saddle made for me while she was in England filming her last film a gray pigskin Steuben jumping saddle to match my horse <laughs> and she told me it's a Tate trait we we don't hide gifts we give people something and then have to call and say oh I got it you want to see it it's here so I got that phone call and I really wanted to see my, my saddle. My family had just moved from Northern California, from the Presidio where my dad was stationed to Palos Verdes, the family home that we had rented out. I am the world's best packer and unpacker. So I was, um, I was on the home front unpacking as the family possessions arrived and had to make arrangements to go over because there was only one car. Dad had a car in Sausalito. He had not yet come down from Northern California. Mom had one for us down here. And so I had a neighbor guy, friend, that was going to take me up so I could get the saddles. I was busy unpacking boxes and doing my, my designated duty and here he comes in at about four o'clock with two guys, one on either arm, and he's hopping in. He had hurt himself. He'd sprained his ankle playing frisbee like normal kids do instead of unpacking houses. Um, and he drove a clutch so he had planned that these other two boys would go with us and go up to Sharon's and get my saddle you know I just had a feeling that 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 wasn't gonna fly it was one of the hottest and most miserable days nobody in Los Angeles had air conditioning at that time but it was a record-breaking heat uh, in August so I gave Sharon a courtesy call even though I wouldn't have, couldn't think of anything, you know, worse than, than her, hearing her say, oh, no, sugar. But that's exactly what she did. She says, if it was Johnny who was bringing you up, that'd be fine. But I don't feel like putting on makeup or even clothes. It's so sweltering hot. I don't want to be meeting new people right now. And I, I told her, I said, 
That's exactly why I gave you the call instead of jumping in the car and just heading up. Because she's pregnant. She's, she's uncomfortable. She is horribly pregnant. When I saw her last, she'd come in from Europe, but I could not get my arms around her. I had my arms not even touching her, but her belly was was to my belly. I couldn't get a good bear hug out of my sister. Looking forward to having the baby? Oh my goodness. Unbelievably excited, you know? And nesting. She was nesting, so she wanted um, she wanted Roman home, and he was planning on coming home. Uh, she wa wanted Abigail, Folger, and Wojtek out of the house. Roman wanted them to stay until he got there. He didn't want her to be alone because she was literally that pregnant. And uh, she was trying to tell Roman and mother and everybody that she'd gladly trade in those folks for me to come up and I could, I could be with her. But I had my duties of unpacking the house. <laughs> so you're unpacking and then... My boyfriend called my mother and said that he had heard on the radio that there was a fire and that five people died and one of them was believed to be actress Sharon Tate. And I had taken a quick break and went and got in the shower because it was so sweltering, sweltering hot. And um, the next thing I hear is the bathroom door, you know, be swung open and bounce off the wall a couple of times and then the shower door was flung open and I see my mother supported by this 90 pound neighbor about ready to buckle and the only thing she could say was Sharon's dead and then she her knees buckled and she went to the floor. I told the lady to, to please take her out and I'd be right there. I had soap in my hair. I didn't rinse it. I just put a towel around it, wrapped a towel around my waist, and flapped down the hall, dripping water, and said, Mom, tell me what's going on. I mean, I could see clearly something catastrophic, but it, what's going on? And I look her in the eyes. She said, Sharon's dead. Then did you go there? Well, eventually I was going to go there. I had to call my father, who was still retiring from the military, but not yet released from duty in Sausalito. 20 minutes later, dad calls, and um, I had to tell my father that Sharon was dead. I'm trying to keep my mother pasted together over here. I sent my little sister to our neighbors next door because things are now coming on the television and she's she was 11 years old at the time, so she, she had herself parked with her dollies in front of the TV while mom and I did the work, you know? I, I can't let my little sister get traumatized by all this stuff. I'm trying to coordinate everything. I was very mature um, and responsible 16-year-old. How did you know, when did you know that this was associated with the Manson clan? That took months and months. In the meantime, the media's parked outside the house. Uh, we have to, I called it running the gauntlet 
my dad called it the same. You know, we'd have to shoot them out of the driveway, cameras on us all the time, and very invasive. Uh, a family breaking down, literally breaking down the whole family structure over those, I believe it was 10 months before we found out. Why did it take so long? Because there were specific things at the crime scene. The way that the uh, investigation was done, it was the dirtiest, most corrupt crime scene in the history of Los Angeles PD. They did more damage. My father actually flew down. He didn't come home. He got a helicopter. He hitched a military vehicle and landed, I believe, at Burbank Airport and then dropped in and walked right into the damn crime scene. They had reporters tromping around. They had police in and out. It was a mess. We've got bodies out on the front lawn, uh, a guy in a car out by the gate. All of this is clearly visible. It, it was a mess. It was a three-ring circus, to tell you the truth. So then, what was your reaction when you did finally find out that it was associated with these psychopaths? I made a effort and got myself in, smuggled into L.A. County Jail and got to look Charlie in the eye. You know what I saw? Absolutely nothing. Not one ounce of humanity. You know what I see in each of those prisoners' eyes when I go in at their hearing? The same thing. I can honestly say, and I'm a very fair-minded and open-minded person, that each and every one of these individuals in the Manson cult are sociopathic. And have been deemed so by the psychological teams and there is no cure for this. So depending on how much stress they have in their life, they go from being narcissistic to sociopathic to psychopathic. We cannot let these people out of jail. We can't. More people will die. The powers that be say that if the person is over 60 years old, Eh, they're most likely not a threat. Well, they may not be unless you are a sociopath. That changes all the rules. Who do we have coming up for parole? Bobby Bouzelet and then uh, Leslie Van Houten again, who, by the way, has never said that she's sorry. She, she's the one that they consider America's darling for, for female uh, role models in prison and they would love to let her out, but she's never bothered to say she's sorry to the LaBianca family. And one thing that the public does not realize is that these people would sit around nightly around a campfire and plan these murders. So even if she was not guilty of killing Sharon, she wanted to go that night, she was willing to go that night. They're all willing to do it even again. And by the way, they all still talk to each other. How do you prepare to go to one of these parole hearings? Interestingly enough, uh, the parole commissioners only read the minutes of the last parole hearing. They don't know what I know. They don't know the history, the psych reports, what they've said, to whom, the lies, the manipulations. So I know 
that I need to bring in some history for them. And I know I need to be very diligent about bringing in and, and re-pointing out the lies that they addressed in the last hearing. I can only make a statement. I can't formulate questions. And I'm the only person that doesn't prepare a speech. I listen very carefully to what they are being asked by the commissioners and make my notes on what spin of the day is what I call it because one minute they didn't kill anybody, one minute they stabbed them once after they were dead, then the next time they stabbed them, admit to stabbing 16 times, which is pretty vicious. Would you describe them as evil? Would you How would you describe these Manson followers? Absolutely evil. Uh, totally self-serving, a sociopath Basically, the crib notes version, a sociopath is a person that doesn't abide by the laws of man nor God. They will do anything to serve themselves. So what you think or what I think or what I need or what I expect means nothing to them. It's all about them. For that reason, they will always be a danger to society. Always. They have horrible temper tantrums when they have gotten turned down. They won't shed a tear in the parole hearing room, but I've heard them throwing chairs when they're denied on the other side of that door. So, you know, it's all, it's a show. They have a year on, at the minimum or five years on the maximum to come up with their shtick, their spiel, whatever it is that they are going to say. I react on the spot. What is that like to be in their presence? Is that hard? What does that feel like? You know, for me, I hate to say it because it means that I'm getting a little callous to all this. To me, it's not hard at all anymore. But I have procured other victims, family members, and I'm trying to um, get them to the point where perhaps they can do this themselves. Because a lot of them can't face the ugly. It's not easy for them. It's actually very damaging. And through their eyes, I can see the horror again. And once I'm reminded of that, I feel it again. But when I first walk in, it's just like going to a job. I, I, I really hate to say that. I have something to do. I prepare myself for being in the presence of pure evil. I have ritual that I do the day before as far as making sure that I'm centered and I'm, I'm in the right spot because hate is contagious and they hate. Are you worried what could happen if they get released? I'm very worried about what can happen if they get released. There are armies of, of young, like-minded hate groups that see these people as uh, as their fearless leaders. 
What is your goal as a victim's right advocate? It is to speak for other victims and family members, most certainly for those that have lost their lives and cannot speak for themselves. Most of us in life are held accountable out here, aren't we, Matt? People say, it's been 50 years, Deborah. Why, don't, why can't you forgive? There's, it's not a matter of forgiving. I forgave a long time ago. I don't have any ill will in my heart for any of these people, but I do recognize danger when I see it, and I think that we all have an obligation to protect each other from something dangerous. I don't want anybody to have to go through what my family went through if I can help it. At 73 years old, Van Houten was released from California Institution for Women in Corona, California, just east of Los Angeles. Houghton will spend a year in a halfway house, three years monitored parole. She told the parole board she fell under Manson's spell when she was 19, that the murders were part of what Manson believed was the start of a race war he called Helter Skelter. The former high school cheerleader and homecoming princess said that her parents' divorce, drug and alcohol abuse, and a forced illegal abortion led her down into a downward spiral and vulnerable. She was up for parole a handful of times since 2016 when the law changed, and every time it was blocked by the governor. But this time, the courts ruled that the block wasn't lawful. In 2017, Charles Manson died behind bars of natural causes. He was 83. Meanwhile, the Manson family murders remain a life sentence for Tate and other family members who lost loved ones at the hands of pure evil. What else would you like to add? I would love to be able to steer people to my parole, uh, my, my site. If you would like to get involved with Deborah Tate's mission, you can visit her website called NoParoleForMansonFamily.com. I'll have a link in the show notes. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit TrueCrimeDeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Now a post-episode shout-out to investigators who wrote reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. This one is titled, Help for Jen. And it refers to episode 38, The Mysterious Death of Jen Myers. If you haven't listened to this yet, please do yourself a favor. You'll like the episode. Well, anyway, she writes, I like the way you give the family who has little money, knowledge, or a platform a voice. My heart aches for Jen's mother and family. I try to imagine myself in her shoes with English as a second language and not knowing what to do. I hope someone can help them. P.S., I thought that she spoke English quite well, and I like your compliment and your compassion for her. Good podcast. And that comes from Shauna Hill. Thank you, Shauna. Again, writing reviews really helps independent podcasts like this one get noticed. I mean, we're up against networks, studios, TV channels, so thank you. It's easy, it's free. Just hit five star, subscribe, tell a friend, write a review, please. And uh, use your real name and your podcast name if you're a podcaster. I'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Investigators, well, you know the rest. Until next time.